Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12 today. We have come to, uh, this morning, the last of the Beatitudes on persecution. In the previous Beatitude, we looked at peacemakers. And now Jesus passes from peacemakers to persecution. He passes from the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility. However hard we may try to make peace with some people, they may refuse to live at peace with us, says John Stott. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave, according to Jesus. And here, Jesus forewarns us with the last beatitude, and he invites us to rejoice, if you can imagine that. So let's think about these things today from Matthew chapter 5. We'll pick up the reading again at the beginning of the Beatitudes and we'll read all the way through verse 12. So picking up at verse 2 concerning Jesus. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we pray that you would be our teacher this day. We ask that you would do far more than anything a man could do with this word. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Speak to our hearts and change us. Bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In northern Nigeria, just a few years ago, World Magazine 2015 tells us about it. Militant jihadists known as Boko Haram came to a town on a Sunday morning. Uh, The minister, Pastor Billy, uh, forewarned the children of the church. It's the plan of Boko Haram to come and drive us from our homes And from our churches. If they do come, he said to the children, never deny Jesus. If they kill your parents, never deny Jesus. If they take you away, never deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went into the pulpit and he preached his sermon and he gave the benediction 
And somebody opened the doors and said, they are coming. And they came. And they massacred 40. Christians held their Bibles in front of them to try to keep the bullets from striking. Many others were injured in the massacre that followed. My disciples, Jesus said, will be mistreated for loving my righteousness and for loving me. So we need to think about that. What's Jesus saying to us? Well, I want to do it in three parts, just taking each verse one at a time. From verse 10, I want you to see disciples may be hunted and hurt. Verse 11, disciples may be scorned or slandered. Yet, verse 12, disciples should rejoice. Let's think about that. In the first place, disciples may be hunted and hurt. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I say hunted because to persecute means to chase down or to pursue. And I say hurt because here the intention is to hurt them, right? To injure them, to silence them, perhaps imprison them, or even execute them. You perhaps know that in the earliest days of the church, believers faced an enormous amount of persecution from the world. Uh, People who worked in the trade uh, would be part of trade guilds for their livelihood, a, a gathering of those who shared in that kind of labor, and yet... They were often left destitute of work because they wouldn't join in the feasts that went on in the pagan temples in celebration of the pagan deities that their own trade guild engaged in. They wouldn't eat, in other words, to the praise of Zeus, nor would they say Caesar is Lord in praise of the governor. And so they often lost their jobs, lost their homes, sometimes lost their families and their lives. You perhaps know of one of the most famous persecutors of the early church, Nero, Nero of Rome, who, among other things, poured pitch on Christians and set them aflame as lights in his garden at parties. In the Middle Ages, it was so often the church in cooperation with the state which persecuted Christians. William Tyndale was burned at the stake in 1536 for translating the Bible into English so that people could read the Bible for themselves. According to the ministry Open Doors, an international ministry tracking worldwide persecution, for the last 60 years, every month worldwide, 255 Christians are killed for their faith in Jesus. 104 are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage against their will. 66 churches are attacked. 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned. It's an average month. Again, according to Open Doors, the top 10 nations where it is most dangerous and difficult to live as a Christian, to practice your faith, the top 10 are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Libya, Yemen, Iran, 
and India. Islamic oppression fuels Christian persecution in eight of those ten. Yet it's North Korea, which is number one and has been for the last 18 years, which is most dangerous for Christians. And it isn't Islamic. Rather, it's Marxist communist with an official religion of atheism. But they also throw in a kind of unofficial uh, worship of dear leader thing. It's currently estimated that there are 50,000 Christians or more locked inside concentration camps for their faith where they are systematically subjected to mistreatment, such as unrestrained torture, mass starvation, imprisonment, and death by asphyxiation in gas, gas chambers. Of the 50 worst countries for Christians to live in, only two of them are in the Americas, either North, Central, or South, Mexico and Colombia, and they're way down on the list. According to Release International, a UK-based charity that helps support persecuted Christians around the world, which is a partner organization of Voice of the Martyrs, if you know that ministry, they warn that particularly this year, persecution in China, India, and Nigeria is on the rise. In Nigeria, which we already mentioned, Boko Haram, in Nigeria, Christians are targeted predominantly in the northern Muslim cities, Villages have been burned, residents slaughtered, women kidnapped and raped. Uh, Some argue it's the worst campaign of persecution of Christians in the 21st century. More than a million and a half Nigerians have had to flee their homes because of persecution for Jesus. In China, the government in places has become more determined of late to suppress Christianity has confiscated Bibles, closed churches, demanded loyalty to the atheistic communist party in power. Uh, perhaps you know that in certain places they're toying with a, with a full-on surveillance state in which every movement in the city is monitored by camera and every word is heard. And you'll be scored with a social point system based on how positively you speak of the government and society, or you'll be scored negatively if you were to say things like, Jesus is Lord, we should trust in him and not in our government. In fact, you'll be scored negatively if you're friends with somebody who's caught saying such a thing. And then if you're scored negatively, you you can lose out potentially on the possibility of purchasing plane tickets or, air, uh, or train tickets, uh, sending your kids to the better schools. You can be demoted at work. You can be restricted to certain places uh, for, for living. Uh, one they interviewed did pretty well lost their job and was confined to uh, imprisonment in their home because their social status had been so cut simply by some negative things that were perceived to be negative. In a recent article by a JBU student, I don't know uh, her, but she's a native of Cuba, now a nationalized US citizen. Maybe some of you read uh, her, her account growing up in communist China, or communist Cuba, where the government she said controlled every aspect of their lives. Lives, the jobs, people were allowed to work, how much 
food you were allowed to buy, what careers you could pursue. And she says from kindergarten to 12th grade, everyone is required to cite, uh, recite the school motto stating that we are communists and that we strive to be like our leaders. And she says, I remember the first day of school always being a little bit scary because the school principal would come to every class and ask if there are any Christians in the room. I was, she says, always the only one in my class, so they would write my name down to keep it in their files. She goes on to talk about secret police being outside the door of her home and other things. Look, many of our... Many of our brothers and sisters around the world face things that you and I just can't even imagine experiencing. Far worse things than any in the U.S. experience for Christ. Yet some of you have seen and experienced some of these types of things. Some of you who have been overseas. Uh, There are people in this room who have been arrested and interrogated because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have been ostracized from your family. They've turned their back on you. They really don't want much to do with you at all. They've shook their heads in disgust at you, at at whatever happened to you that you're now so jealous about Jesus, right? They've talked about you behind your back. Some of you have had family say, you're just getting brainwashed. You're a fool. Um, Some of you, others of you perhaps, Don't share the hope that you have in Jesus anywhere near uh, where you go to school or where you go to work. For fear of professors giving you bad grades or bosses not giving you advancement. You feel stifled by the pressure of uh, a threatened persecution. You feel stifled into keeping Jesus to yourself. Some of you know what it's like to be teased for caring so much about God's son or God's word or God's law. If we really read this beatitude as we ought, would we fall for the health, wealth gospel that says if you just believe in Jesus, everything will go well in your life. You'll have a bunch of money and you won't have a bunch of problems. We would never We would never believe the health, wealth gospel if we believe what Jesus is saying here about his disciples. Why why does he say these disciples are persecuted? What kind of persecution is he talking about? He's talking about being persecuted for loving Jesus and for loving his righteousness. He isn't speaking here of mistreatment because you're a jerk or obnoxious, right? Or a nuisance or a hypocrite. He's not saying, uh, my disciples will really irritate the snot out of people who don't want to hear anything about Jesus. And then they'll feel really good about being martyred, right? Because people don't like them. And that's not what he's talking about. And he's not opposing journalistic exposés of the hypocritical evil found in the church. We can always use more of that. When evil hides in clerical garb, we should welcome light shining into darkness wherever it is. Now, Jesus isn't talking about being prosecuted due to wickedness or for being disliked due to obnoxiousness. But he's talking about when followers of Jesus promote the truth and goodness, justice and righteousness for his sake. 
and suffer on account of him. You may be, as a disciple of Jesus, hunted and hurt for his sake. Now the second thing I want you to see is, verse 11, disciples may be scorned and slandered for loving Jesus. He goes on, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice verse 11 is an expansion of verse 10. It's the only one of the Beatitudes where's this kind kind of elaboration on the point. Lest you think that only the worst forms of physical persecution or martyrdom may come upon the believers of Jesus. He expands the picture to include simply words of uh, insult, uh, either spoken to you, Or about you. So you may be scorned or insulted or reviled, he says. You may be lied about. People may falsely say all kinds of evil things about you and against you. In the early church they experienced this. Uh, The early Christians were falsely accused, falsely accused of incest. Why? Ignorance for the most part, but still a slander. Why? Well, the Bible says we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so a Christian brother marries his sister in Jesus. And that was misunderstood to be a kind of incest, an evil doing. But you understand, they took that seriously and treated Christians as evildoers on account of it. Christians were also, in the early church, accused of cannibalism. Why? Because at the Lord's Supper, we partake of the, the body of Christ. We drink of the blood of Christ. And people misunderstood and thought you were physically consuming human flesh in some way. And of course, that's not what we're doing at the table. We are spiritually receiving Jesus, but not physically with the mouth eating and drinking human flesh. But Christians were thought of as evil and treated as evil on account of that. It's true that when Christians don't live out what we say we believe, we might be mocked for our hypocrisy. If our lives are self-righteous, if we're indifferent towards evil, if we're arrogantly self-assertive, if we're lethargic in spiritual desire, if we're hypercritically judgmental of others, then the world is unsurprisingly turned off by us and by Jesus. A Jesus we say is super important and then we act like he's not. And don't we do so. But even when Christians are genuinely humble, meek, forgiven, bearing the marks of true repentance and faith, the world is still offended by this. Why? Well, in part because we are saying we are dependent upon a Savior outside of us because we cannot save ourselves. And that message is convicting. People don't like to hear it. Look, you can live out the Beatitudes as Jesus has described them here. But you shouldn't expect the world to applaud and cheer you when you do so. If you pursue righteousness at work. And at the bare minimum, give your employer an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. People might learn to hate you. Because it exposes their laziness. If you're pure in heart, you don't join in on the dirty jokes. They may make fun of you. 
If you are meeker than those around you, not insisting on your own rights, people will trample all over you. They'll take advantage. If you're merciful to the needy, people may take all they can from you. If you mourn over your own evil, people may take offense because their conscience is convicted about their evil because you're talking about yours. Now, in this country, mercifully, by God's grace, Christians aren't taken out back, lined up against the wall and shot, which is how some of our brothers and sisters end their life in this world. But we may be scorned, insulted, reviled, lied about, talked about behind our back. You may not even know the parties you were not invited to because you're a Christian. Or the things that were said about you because no one will say them to your face. John Wycliffe, you know it. The name from Wycliffe Bible Translators, John Wycliffe, was an English philosopher and a theologian, a Bible translator, an early reformer, an English priest, and a seminary professor at the University of Oxford who advocated, among other things, for the central role of the Bible in the Christian life. And he advocated against the moral corruptions of the priesthood in his day. And he translated the Bible into Middle English, the English of his day. He died in 1384 of illness, not persecution. But decades after his death, he was declared a heretic, falsely accused of evil. And in 1428, his corpse was exhumed from the grave and burned. He was reviled even after his death. John Huss. The Czech theologian, philosopher, dean and rector of the Charles University in Prague, who became a church reformer, he was burned at the stake in 1415, and one of his last words was this, God is my witness that the things charged against me, I never preached. Look, he wasn't denying his faith in Jesus. He was just saying the things they put him to death for, they were lying about. You may be hunted and hurt. You may be scorned or slandered for Jesus. And and notice here in this passage that Jesus is reiterating this theme in, in a slightly different way. In verse 10, he speaks in the third person as he does in all the other Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who... Blessed are those who... Now, these are his disciples. Blessed are those. Whereas in verse 11, he turns to the second person. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted or reviled. That's not unlike that startling change. It should shake you up and ask why. Not not unlike that change that comes about uh, in a different place in Psalm 23. You remember that psalm, when our pilgrimage moves from green pastures and quiet waters into the valley of the shadow of death, the language changes from, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. The language changes from that to, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. 
your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It, it, it changes from he, my good shepherd, to you, my good shepherd. The greater the trial, the deeper the danger, the dimmer the hope, the closer the Lord is. Or at least the more intimately he communicates to us that he is close because it's hard to see. And he says, I'm personally with you. So here in Matthew, I think, in a different way, pronouns are different. They're being used of different persons. They're being used of us. But the pronouns change and become more personal, more intimate. He's not just talking about them, but to them. You, he says, I know you. You may be persecuted. You may be reviled. You will be slandered. People will talk against you and lie about you for me. And I know all about it. And I know all about you and I care for you. You who suffer for me, Jesus says. And I'm with you and I'm for you. This isn't hypothetical. I'm all in with you. So if you then are, and may you not be ever hunted or hurt, you who may be scorned or slandered, what should you do? How should you respond? And Jesus tells you at verse 12, and this is the last thing, he says, rejoice and be glad. Now, rejoice means to exalt. And be glad is exceedingly glad. I mean, jump for joy, leap for joy. That's the context in which that word is used. So, don't hit back, which might be the natural reaction, right? Don't repay evil for evil. Don't sulk like a child, licking your wounds like a dog in self-pity. Don't grin and bear it like a stoic. And don't pretend to enjoy it like a masochist. Because you enjoy being mistreated. There's nothing enjoyable about that. But he says still, rejoice and leap for joy. So why? And here's where we close. Why? Three reasons why. For, it goes on to say, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What are the three reasons you should rejoice and leap? First, rejoice and leap for joy because he promises you present blessings. Where do I get that? End of verse 10. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake, for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He reassures them, in other words. They haven't made a mistake in following him as their Messiah. The kingdom of heaven belongs to him as the king, and he gives it to them as his people. And just remember how important that would have been for these early hearers to hear him say that. The the earliest believers were Jews. Their entire history was one of suffering and persecution and oppression. From the ancient Egyptians to uh, to the Canaanites in the promised land to the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And then at the time of Jesus, they're under the thumb of the Romans. They've been waiting on a promised Messiah who is going to come as the king and break the yoke of the oppressor is what the Old Testament said. And now decades under Roman rule with the Messiah coming, Jesus says, I'm him. They want freedom. They want victory. And Jesus says, 
You follow me. And in this world it will be more the same. In this world, like my people have always experienced, the world will not be for you. You may even feel how hard it is against you. But the kingdom of heaven is yours. You belong now to me. And so you belong now to my kingdom. Present blessing. Rejoice and leap for joy, he says. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, they may mock you or disown you. But the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. That's the first reason. Second, rejoice and leap for joy because of promised future blessing. Did you catch that language end of verse, middle verse 12? For your reward is great in heaven. What's he talking about? We may lose everything on earth. It's entirely possible. But we shall inherit everything in heaven. I wonder if you believe that. Do you believe in rewards? The reward. The great reward in heaven. The Apostle Paul assures us in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Does that thought of reward help you endure? About... A.D. 160, a famous Christian, famous now, named Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, a city in Asia Minor that's now uh, Izmir in Turkey. He was martyred. He, he was, historians believe, probably the last surviving person to have known personally an apostle. He had been discipled by the apostle John. He was, Polycarp that is, he was hunted down, he was betrayed by those who were helping him, then arrested, brought before the authorities, and threatened with death. Some of you have heard me share this story before. Swear, said the proconsul to him, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise animals, I will have you burned, said the proconsul. Polycarp's reply, you threaten me with fire which burns for but an hour, and is then dis- extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And so they burned Polycarp alive at the stake. But he went rejoicing. Did you hear it? Certain that his future 
was better than theirs, lest they repent, by the promise of Christ. That hope of future reward enabled him to endure here. A couple of centuries later, in the 300s, Eusebius was persecuted by Emperor Valens. He was threatened with the confiscation of all his goods, torture, banishment, death. Eusebius replied, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. You hear what Eusebius is saying? I know what's in store for me. The riches of Christ, the heavenly country, resurrection from the grave, freedom from sin and sorrow in this world. I know what's coming. I'll take that over turning my back on the Savior who provides. And so he faced death rejoicing. Now, some of you are troubled by this idea of reward. So you don't find it helps you endure trouble. And this word reward shouldn't trouble you. Jesus does not here say we will merit a reward because we suffer. But he says that for those who suffer for him, our reward is great. And there is a difference between those things. One seeks to purchase the reward by the merits of suffering. The other is assured that the grace of salvation includes both the gracious gift of suffering as well as the gracious gifts of glory. All is of grace. C.S. Lewis put it this way, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of rewards makes the Christian's life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things that you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany such things. Money is not the natural reward of love, he says. That's why we call a man mercenary if he buries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover and he's not mercenary for desiring it. Another illustration, he says, a general who fights well in order to gain a peerage is a mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards, says Lewis, are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Now look, think about salvation. Salvation is a gift. That unites you to a suffering and victorious Savior. In being united to him. In being a co-heir with him. You may expect to share in both his sufferings and in his glory. His victory. And both those things are a gift. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you. Granted to you. Gifted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What's that mean? Paul's actually saying believing in Jesus is his gift to you. 
It's been granted to you to believe in him. And suffering for him is his gift to you. It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer. And so, Jesus here says, your reward in heaven is his gift to you. If you never see the rewards on earth, you will see these rewards in heaven. Because the reward is for those who believe and who suffer. For those who are united to a Savior who died and rose. That ought to help you live contentedly if you suffer loss in this life. Is it helping? Third, and more briefly, third reason you can rejoice and leap for joy. And it's because Jesus says you're in good company. (laughs) For so, he says at the end of verse 12, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's he saying? He's saying it has always been like this in the family of God. Cain killed Abel. Why? Because Cain was of the evil one. Abel was persecuted by Cain. Why? Because Abel belonged to God. It's always been this way. This is what Jesus said, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So I just ask you, what will you do if they hunt you, if they seek to hurt you, if they scorn you or slander you? Will you fold up and walk away from Jesus? Will you seek the approval of the world and side with the world and the devil against the Lord because that's the easy way? Or will you pursue righteousness because you love Jesus? Will you stand for righteousness because you love Jesus? Will you even suffer for righteousness and for Jesus and yet rejoice? Another way to put those questions is to simply ask this. Do you love Jesus? Then what would you be willing to suffer for him? Are you willing to suffer for him? Then you, Jesus says, are among the God blessed. Because you belong to the one who suffered for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our great shepherd, our good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I pray that you would give us courage in fearfulness and strength and weakness. I pray you'd give us wisdom when we feel like fools and don't know what to say for you. Or be our help when we want to remain silent and hide. Help us, Lord, to be bold for you. For the good of others. For their blessing. And for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.